VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hello and welcome to the Game World Cup Daily from The Times. I'm Natalie Sawyer and thank you for joining us. Over the next month, we'll be bringing you podcasts every match day of the World Cup after 10 o'clock UK time every night. In the studio with me, he's 1-8 Belgium. It's James Gearbrandt. James, hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, in St. Petersburg, the Times chief sports writer, Matt Dickinson, who had to furiously rewrite his match report thanks to a round stoppage time winner against Morocco. Matt, good to speak to you. How are you? I'm very well. Yes, what a night. What a night indeed. We'll get to that in just a moment. Also, Uruguay also left it late to overturn Egypt, as we'll discuss in this podcast. Plus, we'll be crossing over to Kazan to speak to Alison Rudd ahead of her first glimpse of the French tomorrow. But first, let's start in Sochi with the game of the tournament so far. Six goals shared between Portugal and Spain in a game that seemed to have everything. And probably fair to say it was the man that likes to make the headlines, Cristiano Ronaldo, that stole the show map. Well, yes. I mean, I just, you were just watching that free kick thinking, you know, is he? He's probably going to, you know, or can he get it over that wall? You know, and then he just he just saw the concentration on his face was just extraordinary. The technique was extraordinary. The whip, the bend. I mean, it's just perfection. And on under that kind of pressure to deliver, that's that's what great sportsmen do, isn't it? That's, you know, at that absolute you know, crucible moment, they deliver something uh, very, very special time after time. And um, yeah, I mean, just superlative. And, and it's just, well, it's been a, a lively start to the World Cup. And that's just already given us a truly great game um, 24 hours in. Indeed. Uh, James, how did you rate Ronaldo's performance? Well, I mean, it's funny. Isn't it? when, when you look at Ronaldo, at club level, his ability to produce the best on the biggest stage is absolutely uncanny and incomparable I mean if you look at the 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 stats for the goals that he scores in the Champions League knockout phase or, or even from the quarterfinals onwards he he is out on his own he is miles ahead of even Messi and from that point of view his international career has been somewhat anomalous because he's sort of he's been to seven major tournaments and yes he's scored in every single one of them but he's never really caught far I don't think he's scored any more than two or possibly three goals at a single major tournament before. He's never really, really caught fire at a major tournament. Ronaldo, I think, really, he is due to really just absolutely catch fire at a a major tournament. And, And this, you know, given the standards that he's set at club level, you know, that he's never quite hit on the international stage. In terms of goal scoring... Why is that? Why is he not been able to emulate that internationally. You know, the stats bear James's argument out in terms of his pure goals, but we do have to remember, you know, they did win the last Euros and, and with a, a team that was, you know, regarded as pretty ordinary by most people. And I know he wasn't on the pitch for, through injury for much of that final, but, you know, the fact is that they would not have been there without him. That's, you know, he, he is such a talismanic force and, you know, they got the monkey off their back by winning that, that tournament and, and, that's a, a hell of an achievement in, in itself to have been the main man uh, in that. So, 
I, you know, the, the goal record is the important. It's obviously international football brings its own difficulties, challenges. You know, he's, he, you know, you, you, you're trying to sort of throw together a team, and Portugal have got a lot of good players, but just to uh, to always click, uh, as we've seen many times from many different nations, is is a whole different thing. But you know, I just think to, to see him uh, tonight was just. Um, it just gives you hope for the whole tournament instantly, doesn't it? And especially to see goals flying in and to see goals of such quality. It's funny because a, a lot of the, sometimes Ronaldo gets gets mocked, doesn't he? And a lot of the things that he, you know, a couple of the things that he really gets mocked for is he gets knocked for, bit, for being a, a high volume shooter, for taking a lot of shots in a game and also for being a, a slightly selfish and, and some would say erratic free kick taker. But tonight, I think you saw him, you know, deliver on both of those counts you know he took that shot from the edge of the box which was not a particularly high percentage shot and obviously De Gea fumbled it into the back of the net uh, and then obviously he scored from a, from a direct free kick near the end which I, I guess kind of shows you that you know with with Ronaldo his his selfishness while while often lampooned in, is in a way kind of inextricable from his from his genius from what from what makes him the extraordinary player that he is. It was the Ronaldo show, I suppose we could say. But what did we make of Spain, Matt? Well, I guess I mean you know at one stage in the second half, and they're they're they've got ahead, and they're you know passing the ball around, um, uh, you know, and and and, and all, not quite taking the Mickey, but you felt like they were just sort of saying, right, let's just you know play time out, and you're bringing off Iniesta and throwing on, you know, Thiago Alcantara. You know, it's the sort of the quality, you're oozing quality and you're thinking, right, they're, they're stabilising things. But now, of course, you know, that's a heck of a sort of psychological blow to, to take. I mean, clearly, there'll be huge favourites um, to, to, to knock over Iran and Morocco and go through. And, and they've got time to try and stabilise. But I guess we're left thinking... You know, how how rocky are they? How much are they affected? How you know by the by all the shenanigans of losing a manager? It still seems a ridiculous thing to say losing a manager on the eve of the World Cup. Um, so you know, I I think for a, for a squad that must must be sitting around all day gossiping about you know was it the right thing to do? Not the right thing to do? Was it? You know. Where are where are their heads at? This is you know at, at one point you were thinking right they've they've sort of put their foot on the ball um, and, and now you know they're, they're, they've got another blow to recover from. Diego Costa though he was a huge positive for them, wasn't he, James? Yeah, he absolutely was. I mean, I, in general, I, I know Spain didn't win and obviously they shipped three goals and and that would be a disappointment to them. But I actually thought in general they were extremely impressive. I mean, we we talked a, a, bit, a little bit on the preview show about how at the past couple of major tournaments they've sort of they've they sort of veered a little bit too much towards the ticky tacker end of the spectrum they're kind of sort of lapsed into a bit of a parody of themselves they're a bit sterile they sort of monopolize possession a lot without scoring a lot of goals and i think what was what was really quite striking about tonight is that um you actually saw even though he's not there anymore ironically kind of the way in which Lopetegui has made them a slightly more direct team, a slightly more multifaceted team, a team that has a few more ways of, of scoring. And you saw that from the the first Costa goal, obviously coming from a, a big, long diagonal pass, and, and the second one coming from a from a, a nicely worked free kick routine, which are not necessarily things that we associate with Spain. Costa, I think, was excellent, and, and that was one of the real question marks hanging over Spain, 
was who you know who would or should play up front and would Diego Costa for all his talents be the right stylistic fit for this Spain team but I actually think it worked it, it worked very very well indeed because he gave them that little bit of edge he sort of you know he gave them that that muscularity that that aggression sort of we know they can do the tiki taka and 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 you know there were moments in this match when they showed that and they played beautiful passing triangles but with with Costa on the end he just gives them that um a sort of extra dimension if you will and yeah I, I thought he was he was excellent and that's sort of one as I say one question mark that had been hanging over them that I think was a resounding success for them tonight <laughs> The Game, World Cup Daily from The Times with Natalie Sawyer. You can hear live commentary of all four of Saturday's games on Talk Sport, including France taking on Australia at 11 o'clock, Argentina versus Iceland at 2 o'clock, Peru versus Denmark at 5, and the clash between Croatia and Nigeria live from 8 o'clock on Talk Sport. Well, match day two actually saw two of the three games end with late winners. Matt. You were in the uh, St. Petersburg Stadium, a 67,000-seater, to watch only around second ever win at the World Cup. But quite an historic victory. And remarkably, Iran didn't even have a shot in the second half, but was still victorious. And the top of Group B as well. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that game. Well, it was just one of those great moments because, it, I mean, the, the second half was awful. I mean, it was, you know, the six, there was six minutes added Um and um, that that felt like punishment. Um, you know, the, the second half was just littered with fouls and and stoppages and injuries and interruptions, uh, and it felt like the game was just petering out into nothing. You know, Morocco were having a bit of a go. I, Iran were barely even bothering, and then suddenly, you know, they get this free kick, they whip it in, and and this staggering um, own goal. And, and and it's one of the great things of the World Cup. You know, you know, you have a game that's pretty awful, and yet suddenly out of it. Uh, real sort of drama and history and emotion is created because for, for Iran, as you say, they haven't won a game at the World Cup for 20 years and, and they reacted like they'd won the World Cup um, and the, the scenes were great there were players and staff off the bench on the pitch um, they were doing laps of honour afterwards you know, people in tears um, at, you know, and it was uh, as I say, just that, that's what the World Cup does, you know, it, it reaches those parts because it, it, it the the scale of it, the stage of it, and and that obviously throw in some last-minute drama as well. Yeah, you can't blame them for enjoying the moment. But Morocco hadn't conceded any goals in qualifying, so was the result harsh on them? Well, it was in terms of, you know, did they dominate play? Yes. You know, did they sort of look the better team, you know, for, for longer periods? Absolutely. You know, they've got a, a really good pedigree when you look through there's quite a lot of players playing in, in top leagues in Europe uh, and they started the game uh, absolutely on the front foot, looking to win, looking to dominate. And, and you thought, you know, for the first 20 minutes, they are going to take this game pretty easily. But um, Iran soaked it up, started throwing a few sort of counter punches in. But uh, yeah, Morocco will be absolutely distraught because it felt like this game was there for the winning. They, they, they will say, will certainly feel with their... Yeah, this generation of players that you know they 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 could have given this a go. However tough the group is with Spain and Portugal, yeah, you know, they must have felt like right, we can get off to a win, and and who knows after that. And as as it is now, they're well, they're they're um, 
they're in in deep, deep, deep trouble. Mm. Carlos Quirosh, of course, is a face recognisable to English football fans as Sir Alex Ferguson's assistant at Manchester United. So it was Fergie time, we could say, for that uh, winner for them. Uh, but he's taken around two successive World Cups for the first time in their history. They're unbeaten now in 19 games. And also, let's you know, he was talking afterwards, just interestingly, about that sanctions have affected their preparations. I mean, not just there's been a bit of a kerfuffle about whether Nike would could and should supply boots to them because of sanctions, but he's saying that it's affected other preparations and opponents. Um, so that just all adds adds to the um, to their joy afterwards. I think they feel that they've proved a point on a world stage. Yeah, James, let me, let's focus more on Morocco now. And many pundits were tipping them to, to maybe pit Portugal to second place in this group. Given their defensive record, this is going to be a huge blow for them. And it also ends a really bad week for them, missing out on hosting the World Cup in 2026. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, Morocco sort of to run Portugal close has been sort of quite a kind of trendy pick. And, and you know, one that, one that I would have kind of fully gone along with when you look at their recent record I think they've been on a very long unbeaten run as you say they were excellent in qualifying um they actually it was a funny game because they actually played pretty well for the first sort of 20 minutes or half an hour they were absolutely excellent you know they were really kind of um they were you know they were really right on top of Iran and and then as the game went on they just they they really struggled to create which is funny because it's a team packed with exactly that type of player you know those creative sort of three quarters sort of number 10 type players like Hakim Ziyech and Amin Harit who's had a very good season at Schalke and and Nunes Belhanda but with with so many of of those type of creative midfielders they sort of in in a funny way sort of didn't really get in the right positions or or, you know that 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 sort of cutting edge seemed to be lacking and and in particular Belhanda and, and Ziyech actually ended up dropping quite deep at times and for them, it's clearly a hammer blow, you know, particularly with Portugal having nicked a point off Spain this evening. They're going to have to go out and beat Spain or Portugal, but it's going to be really difficult for them now. Matt, while we've got you on the line, I've got to speak to you about some of the negative aspects to the, to the World Cup already. There have been some empty seats. Martin Ziegler's uh, report in the Times that over 5,000 seats that were sold for the Egypt game were left empty. And there are still plenty of tickets left for England's game against Tunisia on Monday. What is going on? Um, I, I mean, I, the, the exact circumstances of that, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I guess I wasn't shocked to turn up at a 67,000 stadium in St. Petersburg and find Iran Morocco wasn't sold out. I mean, even even if it is a World Cup, I, I think um, obviously this probably was not the glamour game, even though I obviously demanded to do it, put it on first on my list. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and let's you know, to be fair, that you know the there was a lot of support for the two countries and turned up in numbers and and rather annoying with Vuvuzelas as well, which um, I think we could we could do less of them. But I think it's, you know, uh, whether they've just not done a good enough job of, it seems strange to say, isn't it, of, of sort of making it uh, available to locals or sense of being affordable to locals that, you know, because I think we're so used to it in Britain, aren't we? This idea that if there's sort of, top sport on your doorstep it doesn't almost matter who's playing you just want to go along to be part of the occasion and and maybe that's not you know that's that's not the case here for either financial reasons um or otherwise and if so it's a real shame because it was an occasion it wasn't the best game of football i've ever seen but by the end you know anyone who was here would have just thought well, i've seen a bit of a little bit of um 
sporting history for one country. Um, I would say not shocked to see a couple of thousand empty seats, but if if this is going to become a trend, it's it's going to be a, a pretty damaging one for the overall reputation of this World Cup. Mm. I, I, I I can't believe it will become a trend, especially if there is a way of of buying tickets when you know that you see the excitement generated by that game tonight. I'm guessing the Vuvuzelas weren't your highlight of your day in Russia, Matt. Uh, no, I, 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 I thought we'd left, thought we'd left those behind um, eight years ago, and I, I, um, I stupidly actually did one bring bring one home for my kids from South Africa, which was possibly the most idiotic, bad, bad decision. <laughs> and uh, it, I, I think it accidentally got broken del- deliberately on purpose quite soon afterwards. Um, Sneaky. But no, it was uh, yeah, it was a you know. Look, great fans. Fans come in numbers, and and they're more than entitled to make their own noise. But uh, yeah, I, I I think if they, if FIFA confiscate a lot of things, um, if they want to confiscate, which, which I don't agree with, but if they want to confiscate Vuvuzelas, then um, they, they've got my support on that one. Uh, so what what has been your highlight in Russia? Um, my highlight in Russia so far. Well, actually, um, I, I did get here early enough. Um, we are working hard. I, I hasten to add, but I got here early enough into St. Petersburg, my first sort of proper day here, and jumped on a boat for an hour that went around the, the canals and rivers, which um, uh, felt like a treat, absolute treat. I mean, when you're here, you do feel like you, you know, you should and must see um, these places as as well as you can. And um, yeah, going past the Winter Palace and all the stunning um, cathedrals and so on in a, on a boat, that, that that's going to live with me for some time. Mm, it sounds delightful. I think we do have to make sure that you work harder though, Matt. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. The game World Cup Daily from the Times with Natalie Sawyer. We'll be giving you a Times trivia teaser question every day on every podcast, as provided by one of the greats in the world of stats, our very own Bill Edgar. Yesterday, we asked you who was the last England-born player to win the World Cup. Well, the answer was Simone Perotta, a World Cup winner with Italy in 2006, born in Ashton-under-Lyne. And his achievement has been immortalised in a statue alongside Thameside-born Sir Geoff Hurst and Jimmy Armfield to celebrate their heroics. Today's question for you, Brazil are aiming to add the World Cup to the Olympic gold they won two years ago. Which was the last country to be Olympic and world champions at the same time? Tune in for the answer on Saturday. The early game on Friday saw delight for Uruguay and heartbreak for Egypt. Another late winner, a header this time from the Atletico Madrid defender Jose Jimenez. And it saw Uruguay win their first World Cup opener since 1970. But James, it was a gruelling encounter. 
Yeah, it wasn't that much fun to watch, was it? Um, particularly in the in the first half, it was quite tough sledding. But um, you can definitely read too much into into one game, I think. And you know, ultimately, Uruguay got the win. They were pretty ordinary in the first half, but by the end, I think you know they were creating quite a lot of t- chances as as Egypt tired. Um, Uruguay, I think, have a little bit of trouble when you know they're the team that sort of expects to have all the possession when they're the sort of you know I think they they probably suit the role of underdogs a bit mm. better that's sort of their identity isn't it they're they're scrappers and they're street fighters and I think you know should they get to the next round and you, you know you'll see them in, in the last 16 match against Portugal or someone that's when I think they'll really sort of thrive but I think if you actually look at sort of recent tournaments when they've been playing teams that you'd expect them to beat obviously at the last World Cup you remember they lost to Costa Rica they lost to Venezuela 1-0 in a Copa America they had a very ordinary 1-0 win against Jamaica in another Copa America So what you're saying is they don't like the favourite tag perhaps they prefer the dark horse tag and in our preview if you had listened to it most that got involved uh, suggested it would be Uruguay who would be the dark horses including your good self James, um, is that still the case? Do you still think they can cause an upset further along the way? I still think there's a lot to like about Uruguay, absolutely. I think, um, as we mentioned in the preview podcast, um, we pointed to the centre-back pairing of Godi and Jimenez, and I think they were actually very good today. I think, you know, Godi, I think, was excellent, and, uh, and Jimenez obviously scored the winner as well. And they do have that front two of Suarez and Cavani that, you know, we really that they are for sheer kind of goal power probably the best strike duo in the tournament and they have the advantage of having played together for umpteen years in the national team and you you know even though they weren't at their best and I think Suarez particularly was poor Mm. um you do see those little moments of understanding there was one lovely sort of Cavani flick to Suarez those little moments partnerships that don't have that sort of experience of playing together don't have those little moments of sort of intuitive understanding one thing that I, I think was noticeable today is we talked on the preview podcast last week about how we really like Uruguay's midfield they've got a lot of really promising cultured midfielders it's probably better midfield in terms of the ability of the players than it has than they've taken to tournaments before but I think one thing we saw today is that a lot of those midfielders who are really lovely players really cultured midfielders the likes it, it was Vecino and, and Bentancur who started today and, and obviously Terrera came on. None of those players is really sort of what you'd call an attacking midfielder. They're really, I mean, Vecino and Terrera are, are really more defensive midfielders and and even Bentancur, you wouldn't really call an attacking midfielder. He's really more of a central midfielder. And I think from that point of view, it was quite interesting that someone who is, is more of that type of player, Federico Valverde, the Deportivo player, I think a lot of people would have expected to be in the squad, was left out of the squad. And it was I thought it was quite interesting at the end with, you know, time ticking away in Uruguay looking for a goal. Oscar Tabarez had to bring on Torreira, who's really a defensive player. And I just wonder if that sort of pointed to whether Valverde might be a little bit of a miss for them in this tournament. Interestingly, you mentioned the substitutions there. There was a a notable unused substitute on the Egypt bench. Hector Cooper declared Mo Salah fit, didn't use him. Why didn't he gamble on him? Yeah, it's funny. I've sort of seen, I mean, I obviously haven't been, been at these press conferences. I've seen a lot of people saying he was very bullish about Salah's fitness. I have to say, I think the decision not to play Salah if he wasn't 100% fit was probably sensible. The way that we expect this group to shake out 
is that Uruguay are probably top dogs in this group, we think, and that Egypt are probably rivaling Russia for the second place. So I think had Cooper brought on a not-quite-fit Salah, we'd all be saying, well, that was a stupid decision. Um, so I think he was probably correct. I mean, obviously, you don't know how fit he is. You know, that's that's something that, that only Cooper will know. But um, if he's not quite fit, I think there was there's probably a bit of logic behind that, in my opinion. There's lots to be excited about on a busy Saturday. Four matches, including Peru's first World Cup game in 36 years and Iceland's first World Cup game ever. And Alison Rudd joins us now. Good evening to you, Alison. How are you doing? I'm all right. I'm cold, but I'm fine. Thank you. The climate in Russia is all over the place, it seems. Well, it's a very steady cold in Kazan, I can tell you that. (laughs) Uh, well, we've got you on because you've got an early start for France versus Australia, a, a super talented France team. And you've been to the press conferences today. So how are both camps feeling ahead of their first game? Well, I think you get the impression that Didier Deschamps is getting slightly weary of being questioned about his choices. So he's gone through the whole, oh, my goodness, look, at you, look who you've left out. So he, know, he knows he's made big calls and now he's being asked, uh, is it wise to pick a young team? If he picks a team we think he's going to pick, it will be France's youngest World Cup team since the 1930 World Cup. And that's young. And it's fast and pacey. And there's no players in his team that you haven't heard of. They're all playing with big clubs and are used to big occasions. But there is that doubt that, and we've seen it before, when you go to the biggest show on earth it can make you free so he fielded a lot of questions about is it a risk is it a risk playing young players but in fact if you step back from it the oldest player by far is the captain Hugo Lloris and in the build-up to this tournament he's been the France player who's probably wobbled the most so you can argue it both ways um, they talked a good game it was Hugo Lloris and Didier Deschamps facing the media today um, they were trying really hard. They said the word serene a lot. They're trying to project a, a sense of authority. Yes, we have young players, but this isn't going to be a problem for us. Um, there's a little bit of needle, I would say, between the two teams, because in the build-up, uh, Antoine Griezmann could barely name two or three Australian players, and he wrote them off as being physical in place of tactical. And they were quick. Hugo Luis and were quick to say, no, 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 no. That's not being disrespectful. But we, we really do rate Australia. They're, they're, they're a team that don't hoof the ball. They play it along the ground. They try and play real football. They're intelligent. And we respect them enormously. And they uh, have great pride. And we have to respect them. So there was that. Although Deschamps did add a little twist of the knife when he said that um, the credit for the Australians get into tournament all lay with the previous coach because, um, as you know, Van Marwick has, has taken over just mm. to get them through the friendlies and through their games here. Oh, you can't be a bit mind games, can you? Um, it's a talented squad, Alison, but what about the manager? Just how talented is Didier Deschamps? Whew, well, you know, he's captain of a World Cup winning team. You have to say he knows how to do it. And I think if you were to list managers with the toughest jobs at this World Cup, he's in there, up there in the top four or five, I would say, simply because 
simply because sometimes you can have too much talent, um, which means that you're hiding to nothing because you have to leave players out. There will be controversy dogging you throughout. I mean, this is a man who was sort of labelled the water carrier, but he's, it's, it's all, that's a good quality to have if you're a manager because you're stoic and you're dogged and you know what makes a team tick. But the judgment comes with, with how they progress through the tournament. His demeanour is fantastic, but you sort of look at France and you think, you, honestly, you look at them and think it could go one of two ways. All this hype about them having a wonderful, gifted young generation of players bursting at the seams with choice. They have to do well, don't they? Well, we will see, Alison. The other game in Group C comes from Saransk for uh, Peru-Denmark. Both keen, no doubt, to get three points on the board in their pursuit of making it out of the group, particularly with France still to come for both sides, James. Yeah, I think this is a really intriguing game. Peru and Denmark, if you look at the teams who have been on the longest unbeaten run heading into this tournament, Peru and Denmark are right up there. I think they're both sort of around 15 games unbeaten. Obviously, with Denmark you look at the squad and you think, actually, there's a lot of individual quality there. You've got Christian Eriksen, obviously one player that a lot of people have sort of been been talking about and, and we sort of had a look at him in the in the Times World Cup pullout is Pione Sisto, who's uh, recorded a lot of assists in, in La Liga this season. When they click, they can be really, really good. I think they put four past Poland in qualifying and then they went and obviously put five past the Republic of Ireland in the playoffs. So when they click, they're a serious attacking force. Peru are sort of a slightly different because you sort of look at the squad and you think there's not that much that we're sort of familiar with. There aren't many sort of what you'd call star names. We obviously, we know Paolo Guerrero and, and obviously Andre Carrillo who plays at Watford, but they don't probably have the individual stars that Denmark have, but their results are so impressive. Um, if you look at their, their FIFA ranking, I think they're up near the top 10. They will be hardened by coming through South American qualifying, which is the absolute toughest road to World Cup qualification. It's the first match and it's hugely pressurised and it'll be interesting to see how each team deals with that. Mm. Well, as a Brentford fan, I'll be looking out for Denmark and Henrik Dalsgaard, the right back who plays for my team. So uh, fingers crossed for him anyway. Let's talk about another uh, huge game uh, tomorrow. Group D, it's a difficult group to call. Argentina, Iceland. Argentina's population just shy of 44 million. Iceland population just under 335,000. England certainly know all about Iceland from Euro 2016. But how have Iceland become a nation to perhaps now fear and be a contender to progress from this group, Alison? Yeah, I'm a bit biased, Natalie. Probably, in some ways, the best person to talk about it and the worst. Um, the best, because I did go to Iceland and do a sort of fact-finding mission and I interviewed about, about like 300 people, almost everybody in Reykjavik, connected to the game of football about how they've managed to do the impossible, which is beat a team like England at the Euros. And then, instead of, instead of just sort of thinking, oh my goodness, that was a miracle and a fairy tale, we can never do that again, they kept going and they qualified for the World Cup for the first time in their history. And they are the smallest nation to have ever qualified for a World Cup. And I would argue, and I have argued in fact, and if you speak to people in Iceland, they say what they've done is they've made their size their asset. And there literally isn't anybody in Iceland who can play football that the coaches haven't seen. There is no untapped talent. And also anybody who wants to play football can. And the other big thing, there's a piece in the Times on Saturday which touches upon this, 
when the fans are watching Iceland play in a big tournament, they know, they actually know someone in the crowd knows somebody in the team, and the team knows somebody in the crowd. They are all connected. So I met with a group of fans, and they, they, they described being at the Euros, looking out at the team, and all chatting, oh, yeah, yeah, I went to school with him. Oh, my mum works with his dad. It is exa- it is, it's not a joke. It is exactly like that. So when you put on your Iceland shirt as an Iceland player, that magical extra 10% that you want to get because you're playing for your national team, and sometimes it's quite hard to get it because you're so scared of letting people down. You have no choice if you're Icelandic because you're not, you're not just playing for the sort of theoretical concept of nationalism or patriotism. You're actually playing for people who are there that you know, and they're not there by fluke. They're there because they're different, and it's really impressive when you see it closed up. James, finally, let's get your thoughts on Croatia Nigeria and what a game that could be. It's funny because Nigeria had some really, some hugely impressive sort of friendly results in, in, uh, in the lead up to the tournament, including that that one where they put four goals past Argentina. Having seen them play against England in the in the friendly, the the, the warm up friendly that they played at Wembley, I didn't think Nigeria were particularly good. I have to say, but it's always very difficult to know how much to read into friendlies, isn't it? On, well, that's right. Managers are experimenting all the time, course, aren't they? Of course. On paper, you'd have to say Croatia are the second best team in Group D. The midfield talent is probably, you know, in the arguably even in the top five or six of the, at, at the tournament with, you know, Modric and Kovacic and Rakitic. Although that is an issue in itself, how how all those players are, are best accommodated in, in one team. Um it's, yeah, I think Croatia are probably favourites, but um, yeah, it's an, it's an intriguing match. That's it for now. Many thanks to my guests today, James Gearbrandt, Alison Rudd and Matt Dickinson. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet. For a limited time, it's just a pound a month for your first three months. Search The Times sale for more information. We'll be back after that super Saturday of World Cup action in the company of Jonathan Northcroft and George Culkin. The game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.